This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. The July 2021 Roundup is brought to you by Fun Again Games. And welcome back, everybody. It's another month, so another opportunity to talk about all the games my wife, Jen, and I played over the preceding four weeks. And if you're a longtime fan of the show, you might be saying to yourself, wait, wait just a minute. Last month's roundup was live. And wasn't that going to be a new thing going forward? Well, that was the plan, but I've got a bit of an emergency on my hands. So I don't have much time for you folks today. Basically, over a year ago, my wife got LASIK eye surgery done. The monovision, where one eye is adjusted for distance and one eye is adjusted for close vision. And your brain just interpolates and it's awesome. And it has not been awesome. She has had nothing but problems with it ever since. I believe she is now going to be going in for either the fourth or the fifth time under the knife to get her eyeball sliced back open again to make more adjustments. Apparently, the distance eye is great. She loves it. But the near eye has just been giving her all kinds of grief. It's double vision and whatnot. She practically can't use it. Ah! And uh, this was actually scheduled for a few weeks from now. But we just got a call saying that there's an opening. Um, so we're going now. And of course, after Jen has her eyeball sliced open and put back together, she won't be able to drive. So I got a driver there and back, which means I did not have time to do a live show with the Q and a and all of that. So I'm just going to try to get through this, tell you about a bunch of cool games that we played and then head off to the clinic and everybody out there, whenever you're seeing this, please, um, send some well wishes Jen's way. Cause we do not want to have to do this either a fifth or a sixth time. Hopefully, this is the one where the adjustments finally stick. Right. Oh, and speaking of live shows, by the way, uh, there have been some folks recently who've been asking, hey, we'd love to see more Rado content. We'd like to see more, um, you know, talk show type stuff. And uh, for folks who have been asking, we're getting very, very close to that. In fact, I've got a co-host lined up, somebody I've worked with in the past who I really, really enjoy talking to about games, and we're thinking about trying to do a weekly live show. Not entirely dissimilar from the uh, corner-to-corner stuff that I did with Tom Vassell last year. And, uh, you know, we're still trying to work out a few kinks, figure things out, and uh, also find some sponsors for the show. So if you are a uh, professional member of of the board gaming world and you're looking to sponsor some content on my show and get some shout outs at the beginning well uh, this might be an opportunity reach out to me let me know if you're interested but that's all in the future this show is about the past so without any further ado let's talk about a bunch of games and like always we're going to do this in a specific order first Shay is going to come on and uh, he's got a pre-can video where he talks about his games that he's covered then I will do a countdown of the expansions we played and then a countdown from least favorite to most favorite of the games which of course as always ends with a new game of the month and that's all the preamble folks so let me see if I can find Shay's tab and cue him up here we go. Shay, take it away, buddy. Hey, everybody. Um, so I covered four games this month. It's a little bit less than last month, which is nice to get a bit of a breather. Um, and two of them are sponsored games. Two of them were requested by our very own Patreon supporters. So uh, here are my uh, top four 
games that I covered this month. Um, at f uh, number four is Far Away. This is a two-player only exploration game, and there were parts of this game that I really, 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 really liked, but also a couple other parts that kind of brought the experience down for me. Uh, the setting in this is you are exploring an alien planet uh, with a government agency that is running a tight budget. So they have not given you important things like uh, landing gear or radios, which means that your ship crashes when you get there and you can't talk to each other when your little explorers are on separate spaces of the map. Now this played into the gameplay uh, decently well, um, but uh, the the things that brought me down on the game were that sometimes it takes uh, a little too long and with the randomness of the uh, different alien creatures that you run into, sometimes they make the game really hard, sometimes the game yeah, becomes really easy and it's uh, a little hard to um, really balance that. But the thing that I loved about this game is the very open-ended nature of the uh, the way that the aliens, the alien creatures work. because. You get, for each alien creature you discover, and you'll at most have eight in your little world, uh, you will have a card that tells you a little bit about their behavior. It'll tell you maybe they're aggressive, or maybe they're uh, defensive or opportunistic. Maybe they like to operate in big packs, or they're all by themselves, or they like to do small packs. Maybe they huddle around a specific den, or maybe they just wander around. And then they'll give you some flavor text. And normally in a game, flavor text is meaningless. It's just fun, but it's, you know, it's fluff. In this game, it's important because those little bits of information that you get uh, about their behavior, that's all you get. And there's no strict AI mechanic. So whenever you're figuring out what they do, it's very interpretive. And it honestly feels a little bit like playing a nature documentary role-playing game while also doing this co-op game about you know whatever uh, your objective is because there are 10 different missions and each of them have different objectives. So the two didn't fully blend for me, which is why it's at the bottom of my list, but I absolutely loved the uh, alien AI mechanic uh, of, of figure it out and do it based on the story. That I think is really cool and I'd love to see more games uh, implement something like that. But for now, uh, Far Away was, is at the bottom of my list. But now, uh, number three is Too Many Bones. And this is a game that I've been interested in for a long time. I actually thought that this was a big campaign game before I played it. Um, and I think there is an expansion that adds a campaign, like an actual story campaign, but this is more of a small scale campaign where at the beginning of the game, you choose, you know, we're gonna fight this tyrant and it'll tell you how long the game is going to be, depending on which tyrant you pick. But that is sort of your, the boss. You're picking your, your end game boss. And then you go on a series of encounters uh, that will, they're just quick combat encounters and, and you're going to go through and you're going to fight and you might level up, you might gain some new items, you might um, uh, you know, progress in some other way and you're going to go until you have enough progress to face the tyrant. Uh, but there's two big things about it. One, everyone, you know, everyone has their own gear lock, which is what the little gnomish kind of creatures you are, uh, are called, um, with different abilities, and specifically a lot, a big skill tree that is completely different for each character. And all these skill trees are all dice. And sometimes the dice are counters, but most of the time they're like one-shot, one-time use abilities that are very powerful, but one-time use for the encounter. And they've also got base stats as well. Um, and the other big thing is the swings that this game brings are, are massive. Because sometimes you will uh, go through an encounter and it'll be a cakewalk. And sometimes you'll go through an encounter and it will be a cakewalk for them against you. Um, 
it's not that this game is well occasionally this game is feels a little unfair now i maybe not be i may not be very good at it that's entirely possible i will absolutely accept that that is a possibility that i'm not good at it but i get the basics of it um and what i felt is that as the game ramps up depending on how you've played it's entirely possible that if you had a, a little bit of bad luck early that will just escalate into a string of bad luck however when things go well enough I really enjoy the gameplay of this. Uh, the the dice rolling is fun because yeah, you are you know risking it, but you know there are always chances to mitigate your your luck because sometimes you roll a die and it doesn't come up the way you want. Well, you can put that back in your in your skill tree if you want to hold on to it for later. Or even if you don't, even if you get the failures, which are the the cross bones, they go into a thing called the backup plan. And I love the backup plan mechanic because it takes your failures and it fuels interesting new powers. So there's a lot of really good theming in this game. The mechanics, I think, are they work well with the story. I really like how the game is presented. It is a little bit swingy for my taste, um, which is why it's number three. But I do think that people will really uh, get something out of it if they, if they give it a try. And what I've heard is that the best uh, player count for this is, is three, which is a little tricky for me because Three is just hard for me to get. I can do solo or two player really easily, and I can do like four players or more. Three, I don't always you know get to, to try. I played it solo, which I really liked. Played it two player, found it to be pretty hard. Uh, played it four player, which I also found it to be hard because of the way the difficulty scales. But I want to hear three is the best. Um, so if you have a good free player group, definitely check out Too Many Bones. Uh, all right, my number two game uh, is is a um, a commissioned uh, video, uh, which is a game called Distilled. Now this video hasn't come out yet. It's going to come out, I think, on the sixth uh, of July. Um, but uh, this is a game about distilling spirits, uh, liquor, uh, basically. There are a lot of games that are about making wine, making beer. I haven't seen a lot of games or any, if I'm being honest, uh, about making spirits. And what I really appreciated this about this game is that I am a, I used to be a bartender. I bartended for almost a decade, and I was getting into uh, cocktails, especially, but like spirits in general. And I was learning a little bit about the process of it before I stepped away from bartending. And so, what I really like about this game is it has taken a lot of real real life aspects of the distilling process and place them into the game. Now, obviously it's a game, it's still an abstraction, it's gonna be a little bit different, but I really enjoyed how well the theme worked with mechanics or how well the setting worked with mechanics. I thought that was, uh, ended up work, working really well. Now, Distilled is an economic game where you have you know, a small batch distillery, you've got some really basic stuff at the beginning, you've got a, you know, a player identity, which will give you some minor power that will help you out in some way and you know a little bit about how to make alcohol, but you're gonna to have to learn some new recipes, you're gonna to have to buy some better ingredients, and you're gonna to have to distill everything. But every time you distill, at the end of every round, you're probably gonna distill something. And it's similar to how actual distilling works, not all the ingredients that you use are going to end up in the final product. Some of it comes out in what's uh, called runoff. Um, and the, that means that like you're gonna put you know three or four or five or ten ingredients in however much you want, but you're always taking off the top and the bottom card. Um, you shuffle it up so you don't know what you're gonna take out. Um, but a couple of those cards are gonna go back into your pantry, and that means you can use them again later. But it also means that it might mess with your recipe because the end result is dependent on the recipes that you know how to make. So if you end up with let's say you know you have 
yeast and water, which you need to put in, um, and some kind of sugar. Um, let's say you come out with you know two uh, grain sugars. Um, well, that's good. If you know how to make whiskey, I think two, maybe it was three, but an amount of uh, grains are necessary. But if you had thrown in like a fruit sugar in there as well, well, that completely messes with the recipe. So now that's not going to work for that, but you can always make vodka out of that. Or if you don't have any sugars whatsoever, you can make moonshine. Uh, those are the basic things, but then you're probably going to want to make something a little bit better, a little bit better. You make, you know, whiskey. You may you learn to make uh, brandy or rum or cachaça. There's a bunch of different uh, spirits that you can learn how to make, and a bunch of different ways to make them. But on top of that, some spirits you sell right away, and you'll get some money and some points for them. But some spirits you have to age. You put them into a barrel. You put them into your aging storeroom um, and into your warehouse, and those you can't sell immediately, which means you're not making any money that round, which is a big deal. However, you're, it's, you're putting a down payment because not only are you going to be able to sell it later, every turn you age it, it gets a new flavor. Uh, the barrel that you've used imparts some kind of flavor. The process uh, mellows out and imparts some kind of flavor on your spirit. And that's done by a deck of uh, flavor cards. And just like when you're distilling something for the first time, you're trying a new process, you don't exactly know how it's gonna go. So you have these flavor cards that might say like oaky or vanilla or chocolate or uh, smoky or peaty or something like that. But occasionally they also have things like plastic. Uh, it's, you know, it tastes like fire. Um, those are not necessarily good and they won't get you any extras, but the other ones will. So you're always getting a little bit, um, always getting a little bit of something. And for every flavor card you have, no matter what it is, you're getting more points. So both the distilling process and the aging process are a bit of an unknown. It's kind of push your luck. It's just like a little bit of push your luck, but you can always mitigate it. And there's pretty much always going to be some kind of return, but it, it makes the economic process a little bit more complex, a little bit more strategic in a way that, that makes you really kind of think about it. So that's, uh, it's satisfyingly complex, but it's also a decently easy game to teach and to get to the table. So I really enjoyed Distilled. I think works great at two, three, four. It, it uh, didn't have too big of a difference uh, with player count for, for me anyway. Although it does mean that you end up uh, fighting a little bit more for uh, the, the different labels. But regardless, I, I really enjoyed it both because it's a, a fun, straightforward, but a good complexity economic game, but also because I think that spirits are cool. And uh, I, I like that that, uh, that liquor is getting a different kind of representation because, you know, beer and wine get a lot of attention, um, but spirits not so much. So uh, my number two was Distilled. Now, my number one, uh, this game I really, really like. Uh, this is Wild Ascent, and this is another uh, commissioned video. This is Wild Ascent is a fantasy themed campaign game, and yeah, we've seen a lot of those. So, what makes this special? Well, there are a few things. One, yes, it's a campaign game, but it's also got a bunch of different modes. And the mode that I actually really liked wasn't the story based campaign, though that was uh, that was good, that was fun. Um, it wasn't the competitive mode, though that's also interesting. But what I liked was the hunt. This is a maximum 10 round. Uh, campaign light setting, sort of light on the story, but definitely not light on the gameplay, where you have a team of seekers that are going out into the wilderness to fight and capture creatures and then bring them back to the city to sell. And on top of that, 
you have a secondary aspect of the game where you have an encampment and the encampment has different a bunch of different buildings so during the encampment phase after you have done your fighting done your uh, encounter you go back to camp you heal a little bit you go hunting for resources um, you take the the creatures that you caught and you uh, take them to town and sell them you can upgrade your buildings and uh, you can get workers that help you out both in the encampment phase and also in the encounter phase and you can craft new items that you can bring into fights but the big thing is that the buildings you make those inform what abilities your characters have the seekers so it's really interconnected in a way that that i really really enjoyed and uh it's, you know there are plenty of times when you have a game where the the meat of the game is the fights and everything else is just like the stuff you do in between is like bookkeeping and stuff this wasn't that uh not only did i find the encampment phase fun just to to do it was uh organized in a way in a way that made you want to do a lot more but it restricts you in in a satisfying way in the, in the same kind of way that other games restrict you with number of turns so you want to do more but you have to make choices about what's most important um on top of that you have the uh the connection between that and the encounter phase so that your decisions in each phase matter because when you're fighting the enemies you might want to kill the uh the beasts but you might also want to capture them and there's a completely different mechanic for that uh it's a little bit dangerous but it works out in such a way that it, it's safe but it's also uh guaranteed that you're going to get hurt doing it and it's all about making those tough decisions. Like when do you start capturing creatures as opposed to keeping to uh, keep, keep attacking them? Um, you know, are, do you have enough seekers that you think you can actually capture this one, or do you think they're going to die in the process? There's a lot to think about with Wild Descent, and um, and it works really well at two player. Uh, I will say I think actually two player is the best way to play because whenever you're playing, you've got four seekers regardless of your player count. So you can play it solo. It's totally fine solo. Uh, it just ends up being a lot to keep track of. But two-player, you got each player is controlling two creatures. You also can watch each other's backs as far as uh, remembering character, uh, creature abilities, stuff like that. So I think it is a fantastic two-player campaign light game. And it's a campaign game in the way that, a, in my opinion, a roguelite is a campaign. Um, where you, you start at the beginning, you go until you win or you die. And if you die, you start over, but you've learned something. And you don't get any like permanent bonuses after losing a campaign, but you definitely have a better sense of how the game works. And you're probably going to do a little bit better, but also you can try new characters. And the game is gonna be completely different. So I, I really, really enjoyed uh, Wild Ascent as my number one game of the month, um, but Honestly, all four of these games, I think, were really great in, in their own ways, uh, and I think that uh, people would like them. Now, uh, oh, the other thing I want to say about Wild Descent, the combat is, it is great. I think it's a, it's a fun, like, dice chucker, but what I do like about it is every hero, every seeker, has guaranteed damage. So it's not like you hit or you miss, and if you miss, you're sad. You know you're going to do something. It's just the dice you're rolling are activating special abilities, or they're just doing a little bit of extra damage. So that I, I like when it comes to an RPG that has you maybe hurting the enemy. I think this is a really good way to do it. I like that you are always guaranteed to do something. Um, so you, you're never, you never take your turn and feel like, well, that was a waste because I, I rolled and I missed and you know, whatever. Uh, no, you you always feel like you're contributing and um, the the pace of it is is really tight, especially if you're playing a two player. 
So again, those are my top four games, or those are the four games that I've uh, covered this month, and those are the games that I like. So uh, I've taken up enough of your time. Rado, back to you. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Okay, yes. Uh, that was a long one. Shay went deep. Uh, speaking of which, of the four, I really, really dig the ideas in Far Away quite a bit. And if you, like me, are interested in it, but you might be a bit concerned about one of the core features that Shay described, the notion that you have to kind of role-play the creatures. You have to make um, uh, decisions based on your interpretation of their behavior patterns, which, again, is so cool. Role-playing an alien planet nature documentary, but if you don't like that, I have since learned that the publisher is going to be putting out updates to the game that will make the uh, creatures follow more strictly regimented step by step. So they play a little bit more like a normal game. I don't know how I feel about that because one of the things that makes Far and Away so special and unique, but for people who want, I want clear rules to follow. I don't want any ambiguity. Well, um, they'll have you covered with that soon. So I just wanted to throw that in as well. I don't think even Shay knew about that yet. I only just read about it. But anyway, folks, those were Shay's videos. Thanks again. Shay will be back. I think he's got a very, very busy month of July coming. In fact, you can always tell what's coming because on the first of the month, I always, in addition to putting this video up, update comingsoon.rado.com. You can hit that I in the top right corner of the screen and see what we've got coming for the next four months. But again, that's the future. We are here to talk about the past. So let me start talking about four, if I recall correctly, expansions Jen and I played counting down, starting with Um, no, not starting with something. I forgot, Ryan. Oh, Ryan, I'm so sorry. I forgot. I have another contributor to the channel. Shay gets the lion's share of the work, but occasionally Ryan Crichton of Nights Around a Table uh, gets hired to do a fantastic rules teaching video, and he did one for Dungeon and Kingdom, which is a very, very interesting game um, that is... Uh, all about I split, you choose, except it flips on the script because it's I split, I choose. There's a grid of cards, I choose, you know, which cards I'm going to take, and that kind of messes up the grid. But then I take those cards and I apply them to a row of cards I've already got. And where I play this new card will split my cards into a dungeon half and a kingdom half. And the two different halves of my cards interact completely differently. One being the kingdom, these are the special things I leverage, whereas on the other side, the dungeon, those are the things I have to go and, um, you know, defeat and all that. It's seems really, really clever. It's got really great artwork, and you can check out Ryan's excellent rules video to learn a little bit more about Dungeon and Kingdom. And with that out of the way, I'm so sorry, Ryan. I'm, I'm under a lot of pressure here, folks. I gotta go, go, go. Um, but now, starting with my countdown, 
of uh, expansions, we will begin with Port Royal Unterwegs, which is an expansion slash standalone for a wonderful little push-your-luck card game from Alexander Fister called Port Royal. Unterwegs is basically a very, very... I mean, Port Royal is already a relatively light, simple game, you know, by gamer geek standards. <laughs> Port Royal uh, makes the game even lighter and simpler, makes it 100% a gateway, a game anybody could learn to play because it takes out some of the more complex things like like the uh, quests and whatnot that you can go on, and uh, but still leaves the really excellent core uh, loop of pushing your luck, drawing more cards, hoping that you don't get a duplicate ship, which would make you bust, unless, of course, you've got enough pirates and sailors to protect you, in which case you can push your luck even further, and after you have done drawing cards and you've picked the one you want, uh, then everybody else gets to pick from the leftovers as well. So, very, very clever game. It introduced some new types of cards that can be added to the original Port Royal, and I like them quite a bit. And, um, you know, if you're looking for an excellent push-your-luck gateway game with a nice little dollop of, you know, pirates in the Caribbean theming, then you might want to check out Port Royal Unterwegs. I'm not saying it's a must-have for um, Port Royal fans. If you already have, you know, the main game or the other other expansions that came out that turned into a co-op and all that. But it, there was definitely some nice new things in there, and I enjoyed my time with it. Uh, just, again, uh, probably a little bit lighter for me in Gen, which is why it came in at number four. Okay, then we go on to number three. Welcome to the scenarios. Welcome to is a great little, um, not rolling right, but flipping right, where every round um, we're trying to make our best little... 50s Americana suburb, and there are three sets of cards on display, uh, you know, or pairs, a number and an action. In every turn, a new number, three new number action pairs are going to come out, and everybody simultaneously picks which number pair they want. The number represents another house they're going to build in the suburb, and you have to build the houses from uh, west to east in ascending numbers, just like a regular street, where you can't have, you know, uh, houses numbered one, five, two, three, four. They've got to, um, you know, climb, and so you're picking the number that'll work best for what you've already built, but then you're also, at the same time, picking the power that is entangled with that card. Welcome to is fantastic. Everybody loves it. And the interesting thing is, there are four scenario uh, pads that add new rules, and uh, you can get these on the Board Game Geek store. We picked them up and had a great time playing them. Uh, the four are a zombie apocalypse, a uh, nuclear Armageddon, uh, the grim ones, but then there's also some more lighthearted ones, a Halloween-themed one, and a Winter Wonderland-themed one. And all of them add little interesting tweaks, like the zombie one uh, adds occasionally put into the deck of the of the regular cards are zombies that will destroy some of your houses unless you build barricades, which is an alternative. Instead of just building fences between your lots, you can build barricades to protect your lots. And the Halloween had you either trick-or-treating, uh, certain spaces would either let you get candy or lets you do tricks, and there's kind of a push your luck because you're trying to get more and more of them, but if you wait too long, other people might grab them out from underneath you. So all four of them introduced something new, and we really like them. Actually, Jen loved them, and I would not be surprised at all if this October she says, hey, let's get out the Halloween expansion for Welcome To, and um, you know, come December, hey, let's get out the Winter Wonderland. Welcome To is already great. I wouldn't say these reinvent it, but um, for me, it was just enjoyable to play some more Welcome To with some little tweaks. But for my wife, Jen, these extra little um, considerations you have to make significantly increased her enjoyment of the game because they just become a little bit deeper, a little bit richer, a little bit more 
more to think about in Welcome to the uh, Scenario Packs. Great stuff. Then we move on to number two, Marvel Champions Drax. Of course, a month doesn't go by that I don't cover more Marvel Champions, and Drax uh, was a lot of fun. Again, like always, they do an amazing job of capturing the thematic spirit and origin of who these characters are. Drax, as a character, is all about achieving vengeance. So the interesting thing is you want to not go to Alter Ego mode, um, but really, I mean, people say this for about a lot of characters, but I think good play is generally balancing back and forth switching to alter ego mode uh, to you know leverage the abilities there the interesting thing about Drax is the longer you stay in hero mode and the longer you get hit, the more vengeance counters you start to accumulate. And um, then you can spend those. Most of his cards can become more powerful if you use those vengeance tokens. So you want to get hit. Um, you want to jump in the way and save your teammates um, from getting smacked. Or you just want, hey, I'm just somebody hit me so I can get angry, so I can get more vengeance counters, so I can hit back all the stronger. Now, of course, the more you get hit, Sooner or later, you're going to have to go to Alter Ego. And the problem is, once you go to Alter Ego, you lose all those Vengeance counters. So there's a really interesting bit of tension. It's, like always, absolutely brilliant. And one thing i got to say, I have found myself really appreciating all the Guardians of the Galaxy heroes because my number one complaint about Marvel Champions continues to be that the developers seem to not really care about the thematic verisimilitude of the Alter Ego form. But the brilliant thing about the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, they don't have Alter Egos. They don't have secret identities. So the, for them, the kind of overall direction that the game is going fits really well. Um, anyway, though, all that aside, Drax was a lot of fun to play. He brings a lot of new cards to the table. And yeah, they continue to keep really excelling at just using the uh, core mechanisms that came with the original game, but coming up with new interesting ways to play these characters that feel so true. My number one of the month, though, is... Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Secrets and Soirees. Or Soirees. Uh, this is a new expansion for a game that I already love to bits. Uh, Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Which was an interesting mashup of uh, Between Two Cities and the Castles of Mad King Ludwig. And the whole point of this game is, when you're playing, you're building two different castles for Ludwig. One to your left and one to your right. The one to your left, you share control of with the player to your left. So you're working cooperatively with that player. The one to your right, you share control with the player to your right. So you are, even though it's a competitive game and everybody's trying to get, um, you know, build the best castle, I need both of my castles to be great so they're both better than everybody else's pairs. But to do that, I have to work with other players in a very fun, fast uh, tile drafting game. And it's all about getting the right tiles into the right spots so that you can um, you know, combo them with other tiles and score lots of points. The original Between Two Castles was fantastic. Secrets and Soirees is great too. It really elevates the game and um, introduces several new types of tiles like ballrooms which uh, don't actually score points for what's in a given castle, but score points for what's in the adjacent castles. So all of a sudden, what I'm trying to build with Billy um, is very heavily affected by what I'm trying to build with um, Sue over here. And Sue knows that, hey, I want more um, you know, sleeping chambers in this place because my other one doesn't. And so she doesn't want to put them in there, even though we're both working to try to make this castle as good as possible. But she doesn't want to make it necessarily as good as her other one. Um, anyway, it's it's always a really interesting push-pull with this core game. And the new types of tiles 
were fantastic. Really enjoyed them. Now, interestingly, uh, this also comes with a new mode you can use for two-player gaming that um, gets rid of the, uh, the, the third dummy player, which is the main way you play it. And I saw that was there. Maybe it's great. I don't know. I didn't care because I love the way Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig was already implemented. So, But for folks who wanted to play uh, Two Castles and they were maybe pushed away by the necessity of a dummy player, well, there's a new set of rules. There's a new way to play, so maybe you'll want to check that out. But regardless... We just had such a blast playing it. It just made a great game even better. So it's my number one expansion of the month. Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig, Secrets and Swayes. Okay, now, folks, you are here for the games countdown. So let us continue starting with my number 13 of the month. Uh, sorry, folks, I was getting a little parched. I just had to take a... Quick breather, but anyway, um, my number 13 of the month, Detour der Welt das Kartenspiel, which is German for uh, The World's End, the card game, which is a very simple, fast-playing card game version of uh, The World's End, which was a big-box board game, and this card version really does capture the core spirit of the original game, which is all about, interestingly, every round, playing a card into a little... Not a grid, but you know, in, into a, a little box surrounded by other cards. And the way I lay this card down, oriented north, south, east, or west, determines what resources I will harvest this month, as well as the resources everybody else around the table harvests. So I can set up so that, hey, I get some stone and books, and you end up getting some piety or what have you. And uh, it worked great in the original, um, you know, into the world. It works really well here. We're trying to gather these resources because event cards come out that will only stay out for a little while that let us spend those resources to you know, build castles and score points in various and sundry ways. And it's a sharp little game. My only complaint about it and why it comes in so low, well, but besides the fact that you have to use cards layered on other cards to keep track of your resources, because this is just 100% cards. There's no tokens or anything. And it's nicely done, but it is very easy to accidentally bump those cards. And wait, did I have four stone or did I have five? That aside, though, you just have to be a little careful. The biggest issue is, and this was true for uh, the original game as well, it's better with more players. Because at two players, every time I place the card down and I rotate it so that I get resources and I decide what all my other opponents get as well, I'm only deciding for one other person. And that just makes it a little bit less interesting. And in this game, it also makes it a little bit less cutthroat because you know, if I want to keep stone away from my opponent because I know it's really valuable right now because that's how we can score points, eventually the stone will be valuable and cloth will be valuable instead. But for now, stone is hot, I can arrange that card so that I keep all the stone away from my one opponent. Now, if I were playing a four-player game, which is the really ideal way to play, somebody's going to get that stone. Even though I keep away from you, somebody else is going to get it. But in a two-player game, there's nothing to take advantage of the fact that, um, yeah, you can just kind of bury things, and it just becomes a bit more cutthroat. And we found ourselves not enjoying it as much as we otherwise would. But I would love someday to play uh, Tour de Velt Dust Kartenspiel as a four-player game, which is, I think, the way it should be played. But anyway, because of that, it comes in at number 13. Then let's go on to number 12, Aqualin. Which is an abstract little tile laying game with gorgeous tiles. I mean, this definitely takes inspiration from Azul. Uh, an abstract game with a very lightly pasted on theme that's there and it's nice to have it, but really it's just all about these wonderful manipulating and playing with and uh, deploying these wonderful ceramic tiles. Now, this comes in fairly low. 
because it's a fairly cutthroat game as well. It's for two players only. And the interesting thing is every tile has a colored sea creature on it. One player cares about the colors of the tiles. The other player cares about the sea creatures. And what both of us are doing on our turn is drafting another tile, putting it somewhere on the grid, and trying to create a contiguous grouping either of colors or of critters. But the other thing we do on our turn is we pick anyone... Before we put our tile down, we pick any one critter that's on the board already and can slide it oh, um, you know, from one side of the board to the other. Kind of like you know, a uh, sliding tile puzzle board. And you do that specifically. Well, it could be to say, oh, look, I, I'm trying to get a bunch of crabs together. Hey, I can move this crab over here and I've got a bigger group of crabs. That's a positive reason to do it. But more likely you're going to do it because, oh, I see you've got a whole bunch of green tiles right there. You've got six green tiles. That's going to be huge for you. It'd be a shame if I took this one tile um, and slid it to the other side of the board, thereby breaking your two groups in half, and now you're hardly going to score any points off it. Moo-ha-ha-ha. And then after I've moved it away, the new tile I'm going to place down, I'll put it down on the table to lock that tile in place so you can't slide it back on your turn. So, it's a very go chess-like experience. It's all about moves and counter moves. There's actually a lot of game in a tight little package and it plays very quick. It's gorgeous and if you're looking for a really cutthroat battle of wits that'll be over in 10 or 15 minutes, it's really well done. Um, it's just a little bit too aggressive for um, for our taste. Jen liked it more. Also, it's very abstract, So, and Jen doesn't have as much of a problem with abstract, so we both enjoyed our time with it. I don't think it's a keeper for us, but I could certainly see this game singing for the right type of player that's looking for something where, ah, oh, I see what you've got there. It'd be a real shame if, oh, zoop! Okay, now what are you going to do? And ah, what have you done to me? You know, that kind of, te uh, not te te but that back and forth um, battle of wits is what Aqualin has going on in spades, and it does it very well. Okay, let's go on to number 11, Mercado de Lisboa, which is a brilliant design. Um, it basically takes a portion of Lisboa, which is, um, I'm sure many people consider to be the designer Vita Lasarda's masterpiece, and one of the many elements of that game was uh, building up a, uh, rebuilding the city. There's a grid, you're putting stuff down, and um, they took that core idea and made an entire lighter, uh, more gateway-friendly game out of that. Uh, Vita worked with a relatively new designer to come up with a game, and it's sharp. It's a great presented game. It's a really clever game. There's a lot of depth to it, but like uh, the previous game, if you play it two-player, it is so cutthroat. It is, in fact, one of the uh, most mean-spirited games I have played in a long time. Because what we're doing is, we are trying to um, lay tiles to build little um, stalls in a market that sell vegetables or, um, oh, what, uh, fruit or seafood or what have you. And um, when we put these tiles down... We mark them as ours, and uh, we're trying to get a series of our stalls in either rows or columns. Because another thing we can do on our turn is invite customers to this market. And then you put your customer at the head of a row or column, and it will allow all your markets to score. So if I'm building a really great column that has you know two or three or four stalls that are maybe, um, you know, pumped up by having adjacent restaurants, which is another thing you can be doing, uh, so they become more valuable. And then I get to find the perfect customer and put them down, I can score a ton of points. But here's what you can do. 
you can find a customer that's terrible and just take, oh, I'm going to spend my whole turn just putting this customer here so that you'll basically get almost nothing. Um, and maybe I'll get, I'll get a little something, but if you could have done it, you could have had a huge payday. And instead, I'm going to cut that out. <clears throat> and yeah, it is just points. It's just every time I prevent you from getting points, I'm getting points for myself. And I did have to have a little bit of investment in that rower column, so it's not like I can just do it completely aggressively. I mean, I am getting something for it, but you know, Jen, I had a hard time finishing this game because, as again, as a two-player game, uh, it really does. Uh, you know, if somebody is about to score a big, huge, massive 10, 15 point, you know, payday out of activating a rower column, yeah, you better believe I'm just going to jump in there with a really low yield um, to prevent you from getting those huge amounts of points. I'll get a few points. You won't get hardly anything, and I will prevent it something that you maybe worked for half the game to pull off. And then I could just sneak in there really quick. Now, sure, that means I'm not doing my own stuff. But the question is, did I have something as uh, big and powerful? Now, I think Mercado de Lisboa is really going to be better at higher player counts because that kind of cutthroatedness just doesn't pay off. Because if I take a suboptimal move to prevent you from having a great move, that means we both suffer. But player three and player four, they get to pull ahead of both of us. So you have to be more positive. You have to be more about I identifying, oh, somebody's about to get a big payday. I better jump in there so I can get um, a, you know a payday out of it too. And it's more about you know being symbiotically linked to players. But as a two-player, Jen and I found, um, I mean, there were just too many opportunities for aggressive cutthroat. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that was going to be a big deal for you, but nope, it's gone now. Kind of moves again. That's the nature of zero-sum gaming, which is why Mercado de las Botas sadly didn't work for us. Even though I gotta say, it's got a great presentation. It's a really fun gameplay, and again, like what I mentioned earlier, I would love to play this someday as a four-player game because the design is stellar for my number eleven, Mercado de las Botas. Okay, then we go on to number 10, Brew, which, as some folks, including uh, the wonderful YouTube channel, Thinker Themer, if you have not subscribed to Thinker Themer, check them out. Uh, they are actually, I think, maybe the coolest new channel that has uh, really started to grow over the last year. I absolutely love them. And I watched their review of Brew, and they were the ones who said, yeah, I think we're going to rename this to Brutal. Because it is a very aggressive, in-your-face, area control game mixed with worker placement. Again, great presentation, which is what really pulled me in all the, you know, the wonderful art. And I love the idea of a dice worker placement game that is fused with area control. Because every time I put a die down in a forest, I get to harvest resources I need to brew potions and all that. But I'm also laying claim to that forest, because if I've got the most dice there, I'll be able to score uh, that forest and get victory points. That's the main way you get victory points in this game. And um, you know, so you, if I do that, and if I put make a big push into one of the three force cards. In a two-player game, there's three. There's a variable number of force cards on the table, depending on how many players there are. Other players are going to try to rush in there to, uh, you know, grab it away from you. And that's fine. I was actually totally fine with that. I knew there was going to be a little bit of push back and forth because of this. But what I didn't anticipate is there's an extra twist. I have two types of dice. Every beginning of my round, I roll them. These are going to be the worker placement I can do. I've got my own harvester dice, which is why I just described. But I've also got these elemental dice. And when I place them in a forest, um, I'm not laying claim. It's not helping my bid for area control of a forest. It means I will still harvest, but I'll get huge, big benefits as well. And the, so I'm heavily incentivized to use those. But the problem is, if enough elemental dice end up in one of the forests you know, during all the worker placement, then no one can claim that card. 
And in that way, again, as a two-player game, and I suspect even at higher player counts, this game becomes very, very aggressive, back-and-forth stuff. Because if I can't have that forest, then no one can. And I'll make sure that, okay, I buried your dice there, I put a couple of elements there, and yeah, even though I can't have it, I kept you from having it too. And again, this is a great design, great presentation, and if you're looking for really cut... This is one of the most cutthroat area control games I've ever seen. And you wouldn't know it to look at it. It looks so... Br- I mean, it's got such a wonderful theme about restoring balance to nature, and yet... I mean, you saw, I mean, one of the things you can do often in this game is literally burn the forest down so that other people can't get it. There's literally a scorched earth policy you can pursue. So, the gameplay is great. And I have definitely known people who would love this game because it's all about, oh, you're going to get that. That's a big nine point. Nope. I'm going to use my special power to cover your die with my die. And um, and then I'm going to put an element down so you think you're not going to have it. But then later on, I'm going to pull my die back out and you will have been so demoralized, you will walk away from the thing and then it's too late for you to respond. Really, layer upon layer upon layer of back and forth cutthroat action in a gorgeous game that is brilliantly designed and is, again, just way too mean for me and Jen, Um, which is why it comes in at number 10, Brew. Okay, let's go on to number 9, Doodle Dungeon, which is a very charming little um, roll-and-write. Although it's not a roll-and-write, it's another flip-and-write. There's cards we're drafting. And when we grab these cards every round, there's two elements to them. They show the elements... Uh, you know, one half of the card shows, here's everything you can add to your dungeon. Because we're trying to build the best, we're trying to doodle the best dungeon possible. And at the beginning of the game, our dungeon is just an empty grid, completely empty. But we want to put walls, we want to put monsters. And then amongst some of those monsters, we want to hide our treasures that we don't want adventurers to get. And so, the drafting, trying to get the right resources to build the most ideally created death trap of a dungeon for the adventurers who will eventually come is half of what you're drafting for. The other half of what you're drafting for when you grab these cards is each card has a special power that you you will use in the second half of the game. Because once everybody has gotten all the cards and everybody's dungeon is made... And it's interesting, the game actually comes with stencils to help you draw um, cool little monsters if you don't really feel like... If you're not comfortable with the artistic uh, you know, creativity. I guess you could just ride um, you know, G for Goblin as well. But I, I, it was just fun using the stencils to make the walls and all that. But totally as a side, after everybody's done making their dungeon, then you hand your dungeon or paper to your neighbor. They hand one to you and then you are going to plot a path through the dungeon for an adventurer trying to find the hidden treasure that some monsters out there have. There's some rules that make it very, very tricky and the interesting thing is the cards you saved, they can now be used to either help the adventurer get through the bad times or stop the adventurer from getting through, or stop the adventurer from making it to the end. Uh, I play them to defend my own dungeon or to help raise the dungeon that a neighbor has handed to me. And then after the, you know, we found the best path using our powers, we hand them back and we score points to see who built the best dungeon, who got raided the least, and it's really clever. It's, it, and I'll be honest, it is just a lot of fun. I, you know, you take kind of a nice sense of pride after you're done, just looking at your dungeon. You see the path that the adventurer followed through. You see, oh, that's where he died because I made the best dungeon possible and nothing was getting through. Nothing grabbed my hidden treasures that I hid right in plain sight uh, because you thought it was that dragon over there I put in the corner. No, it was this goblin that you walked right past and you didn't think it was worth your time. That's where I put the treasure. <laughs> There's a lot of cool stuff. Why did it come in so low? Especially because my wife loved it. She thought it was a blast. Honestly, I'm not quite sure what it was. 
This game literally had me melting down. Um, because the first half of the game, which is arguably the most fun, the creation element, you have to you can come up with some very, very clever, um, you know, windy, twisty paths with walls and all of that uh, as you're drafting. But I just really struggled to come up with idealized layouts. And it, it became very frustrating for me. It's not the game's fault at all. Because my wife, um, you know, we're actually looking at a picture of one of the dungeons she made before I, you know, I plundered it. She was able to make these perfectly designed traps. And meanwhile, I was like, ah! I'm getting this access to the same cards as you, but my dungeons are garbage. And I suspect if I went back to it, and I mean, there's just some kind of weird learning curve. I'm just something about my brain had a hard time coming to terms with this blank canvas and just drafting stuff. And I wanted to draft stuff for the powers later, but I had to get the stuff right now. And it, I, I just was very frustrated by it. Not the game's fault at all, because I can confirm my wife really excelled. I just had some kind of weird hang-up that prevented me from enjoying it as much as I otherwise might. I can definitely identify that it's a very clever game. And again, the the art component of this game with the stencils is so much fun. Um, but I, I just had some kind of weird mental block. It's, it's not you, Doodle Dungeon. It's me. And that's why Doodle Dungeon, a very sharp game. And if, I mean, I really... I think most people are really going to enjoy it, but for me, it came in at number nine of the month. Okay, then we go on to number eight, Devil May Cry, The Bloody Palace. And now this is a very faithful recreation of the Devil May Cry video game series in board game form, and it does it really, really well. I played this solo. Um, uh, it's a solo or competitive game, and it's interesting, it's... You look at it, it's a dudes on a map. We're running around, we're shooting a bunch of, you know, demons and, and insect creatures and stuff like that. <clears throat> and you might think it's really aggressive, but players don't hurt each other at all. This is really, at its heart, a race game where players are trying to string together combos of cool acrobatic combat motions where you're slashing and hacking and slashing, but also keeping your distance and shooting. And um, every card has colored chain icons. And when you've got your hand of cards, you've got to come up, what's the best way I could play all these cards to get the longest chain possible, keeping, you know, um, you know, blue things chained to blue and red chained to red. Although there are cards that are wild, so you can chain them to anything, which really helps a lot. So there's actually a really interesting um, hand management card linking game uh, that drives everything. And I really liked this a lot. It's very interesting puzzles. I've got all these cards. There's like a half a dozen ways I can put them together. But often what you'll do is, right, oh, this I really want to finish with this blue card, but my chain doesn't allow for blue right now because it's really started going down red. You know what? I'm going to hold on to this blue card. I'll play a couple of other cards, and um, but I'm, gonna t I'm, not, I'm not going to do much this turn because after all the players are done, any cards they didn't play are then able to be used to um, defend yourself. So, it's multi-use cards, which I love. You can spend these cards to move, you can spend these cards to attack, or you can hold on to them to the end of the round when the monsters come so you can defend yourself. And you need to, because here's the deal. Um, as your chain gets longer and longer, the main way you score points is having a longer chain. Anytime you want, you can close that chain and claim the points. And if you haven't gotten your chains at like four or five or six cards long, you're not going to get very many points. It's that you really want a long one. But the problem is, you'll leave your chain and you'll okay I'll, I'll i'll draw some more cards next turn i'll continue to build up the chain it'll be even more points but when the monsters come for you as soon as you take a hint your chain collapses and you lose all that progress so you have to be 
very, very clever about what cards you hold on to for defense or get yourself in a position where you think, oh, well, I know what these monsters do. I know how fast they move. None of them can reach me. I'm safe. And so there's this push-your-luck element as you try to get a chain that is seven or eight or nine cards long, and it might take you two or three rounds to do it, and you're just terrified that a monster's going to kill you and just collapse the chain. This is actually really true to the video game, which is all about coming up with really cool combo chains, and if you ever get hit, your combo chain breaks and you lose the points. So, my hats off to the developers. They came up with a brilliant card system that works so well to capture the spirit of the game and is really, really unique. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And I was playing solo. So why did it come in at number 8? Because also, I should say, the game comes with really cool-looking miniatures. You, I, I think it comes with either 4 or 5 characters. They all play very differently. There's a lot of good stuff here. And even though it's a competitive game, it's a race game. So we're not actually attacking each other. We're just trying to one do, outdo each other with really cool acrobatic you know, combat moves. My problem with the game is that it's too long. Um, you know, I, it took... Uh, you know, it took me... I, gosh... As a solo game, it's going to take two hours. I can't imagine. I've, I read people online saying, oh, we played as a three or four play game. It took us four hours. We had fun the entire time. And this is the problem, folks. Everything about this game is brilliant except for the game length. Because you have to play through, I think, four different waves of bad guys. And that just takes so, so long. Way, way, way too long. And it's heartbreaking. Because this could have been in my top five. If, if, this, if this game came with a mode that says, hey, you know what, just play the, uh, Wave 3 and Wave 4, the final boss and the level right before the boss, so you can have a nice little one-hour game, and um, you know, just you know, level yourself up a little bit because there's a lot of, it's a deck builder as well. So you're, um, you know, the the kills you get give you orbs that you can spend to buy more cards between waves and all that. And if I could have just had a two wave game that could take an hour, yeah, easily top five of the month. But that's not available. And here's what really breaks my heart: the game actually was on Kickstarter and it had several expansions. And one of the expansions apparently has additional rules that create an express mode for the game, where you can just—it's called the boss rush mode. And those rules aren't available anywhere. I asked on Board Game Geek, I asked the publisher, and I could not get a copy of the Alpha and Omega rule set that apparently gives you an express version, which would have made this in my top five games of the month. Also, they come with another variant in the Alpha Omega, because if I had one more complaint, and this is really more true for the uh, solo game. The solo game, you're just trying to beat your high score. The interesting thing is you never die. If you run out of hit points, you respawn and you just lose some of your points. Because this is a race to score the most points. And in a solo game, that means you'll never die. You're never in any real danger. It just means, oh, I don't score as many points. So that was kind of boring. And apparently, in the Alpha Omega rules, there's another mode that makes you afraid of dying. And the core game needs these to give it its full. And it's weird. All the other expansions, you can find the rules for them online. But the publisher has not put the most important rules out there. And I don't know. I hope someday they do, because I would love... I mean, I really, really enjoyed this game. Now, to be fair, I really enjoyed Devil May Cry back in the day. I, I played the heck out of 1 and 2 back when I was still in the video game industry as a designer. I thought it was a brilliant design, and I think the design here is brilliant. Just marred. I do not want to... It's not brilliant enough to warrant playing for 3 or 4 hours. And if the Alpha Omega rule set were made publicly available, I think that could change my opinion of this quite a bit. But as it is, it was my number 8 of the month, Devil May Cry, The Bloody Palace. Okay, whoo!
Let's move on to number seven, Super Skill Pinball Forcade, which is an excellent roll and write that recreates the uh, really what's interesting. I just ha- talked about a video game recreated in board game form. Here's a pinball game recreated in board game form, and it does such a brilliant job. Every round, you're going to roll dice, and those dice determine where your pinball is going to bounce because every flipper, every bumper, every panel, everything that would be represented on a really elaborate, fancy, uh, modern pinball machine is here. And you roll the dice and you have to pick one of the dice to say, okay, I'm going to have the ball carry them over to that. And then you mark what got hit. And all there's the game comes with four different pinball boards that everybody can use. That's why it's called the 4K. They all have unique rules, uh, like the fantasy one, where you can kind of build up a horde and then, you know, summon a dragon to kill the horde. And, you know, these are things, these are the kind of things that happen in pinball machines. It's amazing, the uh, design of modern pinball machines, and it really captures that feel. Um, and I mean, everything you would expect is here. You can unleash a second ball. So they're both bouncing around and then you use both dice instead of picking one or the other. And, um, you know, right timing the flippers to be able to aim the ball where you want to shoot it up. And then the ball slowly works its way back down. And, uh, you know, eventually it's going to gutter and everything about this game is brilliant at capturing the feel of pinball, which I'll be honest, I'm not a pinball aficionado, I'm not a pinball wizard, but I really found myself enjoying this and appreciating the subtlety of modern pinball design as brought out in this wonderful rolling right. So why did it come in at number seven? Too long. Too long. Um, because you uh, play, you get three balls, which is certainly appropriate and true because that's kind of standard for pinball machines. You get three uh, goes, three balls to bounce around. And honestly, if this game had a variant that said, hey, two balls. Uh, do everything you can in two because three is too long. A roll and write should not take over an hour, or at least not one that's a little lightweight one like this. Is a this is you know for roll and writes it's kind of a light to medium weight. It's not a really heavy duty one like Roman Roll or Pandoria Merchants or something like that. But it's long, and it unfortunately, sadly, overstays its welcome. And um, you know, I would love. For uh, you know the publisher to release. Okay, well, hey, for folks who want the express mode for this, here's what you do, and, and you know, just release a variant. I'm sure it could come up with one that would still allow you to capture all the feel of building up for really big paydays and whatnot, but lets you get out in a half an hour time instead of closer to an hour. And if that were the case, Super Skill Pinball would have made my top five of the month. Uh, because the core gameplay is really good, but it's just a little bit too long for both Jen and I agree. It's like, oh my gosh, we're, we're halfway through the game and it feels like it should be over now. We feel like we've done enough. And in fact, my gosh, we've done almost everything. There's not much we can still squeeze out of this thing. And yet we've still got one more ball to go. What are we going to do? So brilliant game just needs an express mode. I want express super skill pinball 4K, please. Um, Because that would totally make this a keeper. But as it is, it was my number seven of the month. And folks, by the way, for the record, I think it'd be super easy. Just say you only have two balls. I, I, I I don't imagine there'd be any reason that would break the game at all. I'm just not big into unofficial house rules. If there were an official variant from the publisher, um, if it was just Sidney Engelstein, or not Sidney, um, Jeff Engelstein, uh, designer coming out saying, yeah, the game works fine if you only give yourself two balls. There's no downside. It doesn't break the balance of the game at all. This would have been a keeper. It probably would have been my number three of the month instead of my number seven, Super Skill Pinball 4K. Okay. 
Now let's move on to number six, Soul Raiders, which was a paid Kickstarter preview. I've already filmed the run-through after Jen and I played the prototype I got, and the run-through is going to be coming up, I think, on the 7th of July, or like the second week of July sometime. It'll be going on Kickstarter, and folks, mark your calendars, because this is an excellent, big, sprawling, cooperative adventure game um, from Mark Andre, who, if you don't know the name, he's the designer of Splendor. And the designer of Splendor is not who people would assume would be bringing out the next big, epic, campaign, narrative-driven story game. And yet, he has done so. And if you know Splendor, Mark is known for making really interesting, deep gameplay out of the simplest, most elegant of gameplay mechanisms. You know, that's what Splendor is. And Soul Raiders does the same thing. In a, in a world where we are, year after year, getting huge, big, complex, um, you know, you know, multi-hour, multi-rule ed- cooperative adventure campaigns. You know, Shay talked about one earlier with, um, I forget, the, you know, it was his number one. I mean, and I'm about to talk about another one um, in a world where games are getting bigger and more complex, more and more rules to keep track of. Um, Soul Raiders kind of bucks that trend. The gameplay is super simple. On your turn, you've got four cards in your hand. Uh, Each card can be used for a number that can be applied to any skill test, whether it's moving or fighting or opening doors or talking to people or whatever. But if you use the cards for what they're designed for, they unlock bonuses on them as well. And the four cards in your hand represent the four actions you can do on your turn. But if you need to have a really tough problem solved, you can combine those cards so that you they get duplicative and multiple powers together. But then if I combine two cards, that means I only get to do three actions this turn. If I combine, you know, if I do a super action that takes three of my cards, then I'll only get to do two actions this turn. And it's such a simple and brilliant trade-off. I absolutely love it. Um, and yet it drives for interesting and complex uh, decisions because of the special powers and using the right cards at the right time and all that. So the core, like Splendor, the core gameplay here is brilliant and simple and elegant and easy to teach and um, you know without all the overhead we see ever since Gloomhaven came out. And Gloomhaven has a rule book that's twice as long as your average game. Uh, you know We've been seeing more and more people doing that. Soul Raider says, no, we're going to have a really short book, but we're not going to skimp on the depth and breadth of gameplay and the storytelling as well. Another thing I really love about this game, and you'll see all this in my run-through, is the way the world is presented as a series of big, like small posters. As you move from one to the other, it just looks gorgeous. It does not, it's not a map of the world. It's its more like you're exploring a series of comic book panels, and I just absolutely love that to bits. And the, But the thing I love more about it than anything else is the turn structure, because players are not bound by, okay, Bob, you go. Now, Betty, you do something. And now, I, I don't want to do anything yet. I need for Bob to kill the thing before I go. Nope. I got to do something now. Um, that's been standard for cooperative games, really, ever since it's been codified by Pandemic. You know, a really uh, in rigid enforced structure. Soul Raider says, to heck with that. Do whatever you want in any order you want. And that kind of harkens back to Spirit Island. One of the great things about Spirit Island is you can have so much more collaboration. You feel so much more part of the world. You don't have this artificial restriction of players must play in turn order clockwise. You Players can do whatever they want. You can split up. Uh, and it gives you such a great feeling of freedom. And it really makes the world feel more alive. Very impressive title. 
Very, very impressive title. Um, and oh, and then on top of that, combat is nice and quick and simple. And one of the things I really appreciate is we're super powerful. We are not just little wussy scrubs. We are often taking on three, four, five monsters at a time, and yet we don't care because we can just wipe the floor with them. So it's a really great power fantasy fulfillment, too. Definitely watch for Soul Raiders, folks. It's really sharp. I really liked it a lot. Um, don't be fooled. Um, this is a very high rating for me. It's just that there's five games I like even more. But my number six of the month, and again, coming on Kickstarter soon, watch for it. It's going to be great. My number six, Soul Raiders. Which, as I said, was a paid Kickstarter preview. Okay, now let's move on to number five. Ether Fields. And now, this is an odd one to point out because everything I just said about Soul Raiders... I was talking about Etherfields. Etherfields is a poster child for these new type of cooperative, fantastical adventure games that are just drowning in um, components and special rules and you know complex systems that intermesh in all kinds of ways and uh, that really, really push you very, very hard as a player to keep track of everything and have really big, thick rule books. Everything I just said about, oh, you know, Soul Raider is the, uh, is the cure, Etherfields is definitely um, you know, one of those types of games. And yet, I love it. I think it's fantastic. It's my number five game of the month. And there's a bunch of reasons why. I mean, I, I, I love the, the ethereal, um, you know, dreamscape we find ourselves in where you, I mean, it's hard to really grasp onto anything because we are in a dream world. We um, are suffering from amnesia. We have no idea who we are, why we're here, what we're meant to do. And we're just traveling from dream to dream and un slowly unlocking snippets of what our overall goal is. But the gameplay itself is a deck builder. It is driven by every turn. You've got a handful of multi-use cards um, that can be played for their special powers or played to harvest resources that let us um, fight or interact or move or whatever. <clears throat> and every round, every turn, is a puzzle to solve. How am I going to use these cards? Which cards am I going to hold on to for next round? Um, you know, it's got a lot. Uh, you know, if Soul Raiders does that kind of thing, but does it in a simple, smooth, elegant, tight, tight package, Etherfield is a big, sprawling beast of a game. Um, and the thing I love more about than anything else is every dream in this game that you can... These are missions. They're, they're dreams in this game that you go and explore is almost like its own unique escape room. It could have been, hey, here's a new escape room. It's this particular dream. We sold it as a standalone game because it provides puzzles that are unlike anything else in the game. This game is constantly reinventing itself. Every time you go into a new dream, you're going to find new ways that it shakes up the formula. And it's just so incredibly impressive to me. Just the endless amount of imagination and variety that comes into this game. Um, which is, again, very appropriate, considering it is a game all about... All ultimately traipsing your way through 30-some different dreams. Um, you know, some are silly, some are spooky, some are scary, some are melancholy, and um, it takes you on a really interesting emotional roller coaster ride while also walking you through a series of really wonderful um, and imaginative puzzles. Now, um, the Etherfield seems to be a very polarizing game. A lot of people have a really big problem with it. And the main reason is because there's actually two halves. I just talked about uh, the meat of the game that I think everybody agrees is really pretty cool. When you get into the dream and you're exploring and you're solving problems and you're dealing with people and all that. But when you're not doing that, you're on an overworld. that It's called the dreamscape. And you travel around trying to collect keys so you can unlock the next dream that you can then dive into. And I kind of liken it to a classic Japanese video game RPG 
RPG like Final Fantasy or Dragon Warrior where, oh, well, we travel around the world, we get to where we're going, and then we go into the dungeon and deal with the boss or whatever. And like those old games, as you're traveling around the world, you will get occasionally jumped by little mini-bosses, and you have to stop and fight them. And apparently, a lot of people find that very, very frustrating. That they look. I just want to get to the dream. I don't want any of this stuff to get in the way, and I and you know I don't want to have to fight the 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 the, the crying shadow for the sixth time. I, I mean, times I have to do this. I'm, I'm I've I've had enough of it, and I don't know. I, I, I my run through for this will be coming uh, in June. It's actually done or in July. It's done, but it's over two hours long. My run through of this game, and so it's taking Paolo a little while to get all the goof checks done. But it'll be coming soon, and I'll talk about this at great length. But I strongly disagree with the prevailing notion that slumbers, which is the over um, view system where you just fight little mini bosses, are repetitive and boring and frustrating. I believe the game gives you enough tools to have control over the system so that you don't have to be frustrated. So you, I mean, every time you come across a slumber, it's not an obligation, it's an opportunity. And uh, I, I think the system works great. But, you know, hey, I come from uh, you know, the old days of yore where, you know, this is the way video game or RPGs worked. And um, although it's interesting, for players who do agree that, okay, yeah, the overworld system just becomes a bit burdensome, the developers have... Uh, listened, and they've said, okay, here's a special mode. Remember I was saying earlier, man, I wish there'd be some games that would give me some variants to solve these problems. Etherfields, Awaken Realms, they did. They created a continuous dream mode. All you gotta do is download one card, print it out, keep it on the table, and if you ever come to a slumber that you don't want to play, you can skip it. And they've done it in such a way that it doesn't break the balance of the game. You, um, you're just, you know, denying yourself you know, 10% of the overall experience. You'll And you're just, you know, shortcutting. It's like a cheat code that lets you get right to the really cool dreams. So, if you have been put off by Aetherfields because you've heard, yeah, the slumber mode is really kind of a drag, man, you don't have to play it. The slumber mode is now optional. I would continue to play with it, but you don't have to. Now, there's only one real significant problem I have. I know, I don't have any problems with Aetherfields at all. I, I love the constant imagination and variety and the surprises it throws your way. I liked the um, ability to manipulate the slumbers to my benefit. I like the emotional cathartic moments. I like the system for emotional intelligence. I'll talk about all this in the run-through. Um, and I even liked it playing solo. But really, if I'm going to play a game like this this long, I want to share it with my wife. And she dug the gameplay. She did. I talked about this right up front. She did not like the wandering around aimlessly trying to figure out what's going on. The fact that we're amnesiatic. We. I played this game for 20 hours in the month of June. Jen played it for about 10. So I played another 10 solo. When Jen said, look, I just... I just don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm here to do. It's very frustrating for me. I need a mission. And here's the thing. The base game of Aetherfields comes with Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. As I understand it, by the time you finish Chapter 2, you know who you are, you know what you're here to do, and when Chapter 3 and Chapter 4 expansions come out later this year, or maybe it's 2022 now, then you'll be on the mission. I suspect if Jen could have started in Chapter 3, she'd love it as much as me. But... It is a dream. You don't know what's going on. It's constantly drip-feeding you little snippets of who you are and what the big picture is. It was not enough for Jen. She wanted something more concrete. Something she could get her hands on from a story, from a narrative point of view. And because the game, by its nature, is very disjointed, and that just wasn't a good fit for her. I loved it, but I loved all the mysteries of Lost, too. And um, so... 
That's Etherfield, folk. And as much as I just talked about now, I'm going to talk about it a lot more coming soon when my uh, run-through comes out. Okay. Um, anyway, let's move on now to number four. Imperium Classics and Legends, which is a deck builder from Nigel Bucknell and who's teamed up with Dave Turchy. And it's a, a, an ancient era of antiquities civilization building game where our deck represents all the breakthroughs and actions our fledgling nation can take on, whether we're the ancient Greeks or the Mesopotamians or the Egyptians or, or um, depending on which box you get, whether it's classic or legends, there's some fantastical ones like the Atlanteans or the Arthurians or whatnot as well, or the, the Toltecs. If you get both boxes of this game, you get 16 different... Um, uh, nations that you can play, and every nation plays so radically differently. The core deck building of this game is really satisfying, brilliantly done, um, but the secret sauce is every time you play a new one, you're going to, you know, the Atlanteans play so different than the uh, the Mesopotamians, and, um, you know, and then the Atlanteans versus the Mesopotamians, uh, because this is uh, a game, unfortunately, with a healthy dollop of Take That, because almost all of, I mean, some of them, uh, some of the nations like the Vikings or whatnot have a lot of, look, I'm going to burn your stuff to the ground. Most of them have a few things you can mess with each other here or there, and that's my only problem with this game. I wish there was a 100% Care Bear variant because the core gameplay is so great. And unlike the other games I mentioned earlier in this roundup where I, 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 didn't, I didn't rate them as well because they had a little bit too much cutthroatedness, the design here is oh so amazing. Go watch my run through my final thoughts where I, I go into depth why. Actually, oh, my, again, my video's finished. It'll be going up soon, just waiting for Paula to do the goof checking. Um, you'll be seeing my Ether Fields and my Imperium videos very quickly in the month of July. And, I mean, you will see just how rich and wonderful this game is. So much variety, so much replayability, so much depth, and so strongly thematically grounded in a way I have rarely seen amongst deck builders. I mean, the verisimilitude, the attention to detail on this game is off the charts. And then on top of that, it's got, I think, literally dozens, if not hundreds, of unique pieces of art from the Miko, who's my favorite board game artist, too. So, hey, it's a winner, winner, chicken dinner. The only problem is, you know, Jen and I played a few times, and we kept running into, oh, well, here's a way I can mess with you. Here's a way I can mess with you. I'm still putting it at number four because it's so good, I might keep it anyway. I might break my cardinal rule and say this game is just too good to give up, even if we do occasionally have to drink each other's milkshake. Um, you know, this game is up there with Ray's Arcana and Evolution, and um, you know, I can if I think about it, I can probably come up with a few other you know best of all time card games. Um, and uh, but unfortunately, it just has a, that little bit of extra. Oh, I stick the knife in every once in a while that keeps it from being one of my favorite games of all time, quite frankly. But the design is so good that, in spite of the take that, it comes in at number four, Imperium Classics and Legends. I suspect this is going to make a lot of people's top ten of the year, and is I think is going to be one of the be ten best games of the year. It's just a question of can Jen and I come to terms with the uh, the take that that is sprinkled hither and yon. But anyway, let's move on now, because I'm running out of time. i got to get going. Uh, my wife's got a date with Eyeball Destiny. So let's go on to number three, Sheepy Time. Oh, my goodness. 
I did not expect much from this game, folks. I'll be honest. It looks like it's a game for kids. And the theme certainly sounds like it because we are sheep that are trying to jump over the fence to help um, people get their 40 winks. And the first player to score 40 points by literally having our sheep just move clockwise around a rondelle and jump over a fence to score points, anybody would think, yeah, this is just a simple, lightweight game for kids. It's not do not be fooled. Do not judge this book by its cover. This is a surprisingly deep and interesting Rondell game. Rondells are one of my favorite gameplay mechanisms of all time. And the way this game works is you've got on your turn three cards in your hand. And you're going to play one of them. And the cards let you do things like move a certain number of spaces or um, you know interact with the... Uh, well, at the beginning of the game... There's just the rondelle, there's just the players, and there is the nightmare, which is there's one of three creatures that moves around the rondelle and kind of blocks spaces and gets in our way and scares us and maybe wakes us up. Uh, because this is a push-your-luck game. You want to keep going around and around and around the rondelle, scoring more and more points. But the longer you go, the more likely the nightmare is going to catch you. And if he catches you, you lose all your progress. You bust in push-your-luck fashion. So, you've got your cards. You're trying to play the right one that will put you in a position that minimizes your chance of running afoul of the nightmare. But the brilliant thing is, um, occasionally, you uh, get to grab these dream tiles that you put on the outskirts, and then those mean not only are you just trying to move around the rondelle, going clockwise and um, avoiding the nightmare, but you're specifically trying to land on specific spokes to activate all these different powers. And the game comes with like a couple dozen of them, and you're only going to see a few of them every single game, and they all interact in really interesting ways to create this maze of stuff that you're trying to navigate. Look, I gotta move forward because um, I gotta get over that fence, but I've gotta move over here to stay away from the shadow, but I've gotta land on this thing, and I've got three cards. Each one of them will let me move in a different way. Which one am I gonna play? Am I gonna be safe? Am I gonna push my luck because I'll be able to activate this power, and it's only a one in five chance that the nightmare will land on me. Ah! This game is brilliant. It's wonderful and charming and quirky with its presentation. And um, I could imagine trying to use this as a gateway game, maybe? But the thing is, the longer it goes, and the more of these special tiles appear on the outskirts of the board, it gets... I'm not saying this is like a Vita Lasarda super-duper heavyweight Euro game, but there is a surprising amount of heft. And in all honesty, uh, it is just a blast. This is my wife's game of the month. She loved it that much, and I loved it too. In a very good month with a lot of really great games, it's my number three. I cannot recommend Sheepy Time highly enough. It is a blast. It is super charming, and um, you know it's just a fun little push your luck. But it has so much more going on with it than most push your luck style games. I doff my cap to my number three of the month, Sheepy Time. Okay, then let's go on to number two, Botanic. Okay, this is a uh, new game from the designer of Jaipur, although he's teamed up with his fellow designers who uh, last year gave us um, Encore, which was a great game too. But in case you don't know, folks, Jaipur is one of the greatest two-player, couples-friendly, modern designer card games of all time. I think it's widely regarded as that, and with good reason. And so, anything coming from Sebastian Passion, and I'm, I'm sorry, uh, you know, do uh, you know, all credit to his design partners as well, but Jaipur puts Sebastian as, you know, like the superstar headliner of this. And all that aside, this is a brilliant little tile lane game. We are trying to build machines that will allow 
flowers and plants to grow. And it's got this very simple thing where on your turn, there are three tiles. You're going to take one of them and you're going to put it on the central board. You're either going to put it on your side of the board, which means you put it in a queue so that later on you can unlock it and add it to your machine. It's kind of like you put it in a research queue. You're trying to figure out how to build this thing. Now, instead of putting it on your side of the board, you can put one of the tiles in the center of the board, which represents you kind of, um, you know, uh, putting research time into the lab as a whole. And if you cover, uh, if you put into the center of the board a tile that doesn't match the, the tile that's on your side, that breaks your tile free so you can then add it to your little growing uh, puzzly uh, uh, series of pipes and whatnot. It sounds really simple. It is really simple. But it is surprisingly rich and deep and infinitely replayable, much like Jaipur. And the interesting thing is, you know, okay, I've, I've got this piece. I want to break it out so I can add it. So I'll put this other one here. But on the other side of the board, this is a two-player only game. If I put this thing here to break my piece out, I'll break your piece out as well. And I'll be helping you on my turn. And if you, on your turn, can see, oh, I'm probably about to break this piece out because you know I want to get it, you might jump onto the other side so that you can get a passive bonus off of my turn. And as soon as you're getting that, okay, I don't want to break you out anymore because you're going to benefit from yours more than I'll benefit from mine. It's... It's a super simple game that has surprising depth, a really great presentation style too, and uh, they even were um, sensitive to colorblind players because even though there are red and green tiles, there's unique symbols on all of them. It's brilliant. Much like before it, Jaipur was brilliant. We both really loved it quite a bit. It's my number two of the month, Botanic. But, folks, it is time for my game of the month. In a very wonderful month with a lot of really great experiences, nothing surpassed my farm shop. From designer Rudiger Dorn, and I say always bet on Dorn. You know, Mr. Goa, Mr. Istanbul, uh, Mr. Uh, oh, uh, Karuba. I think it was that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's done so many brilliant designs over the years, and they're always such simple systems at their heart and yet they just blossom and do so much and so when i heard a new rudiger dorn game was coming i was excited but then i was like oh wait this is a family level game because it's it's all about you know running uh your farm and harvesting your goods to sell in your own little farm shop and it's 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 lovely and charming but really simple and cartoony it looks like a very family friendly kitty style game do not be fooled folks there is so much going on in this game. There's no other way to call this other than a Machi Koro killer. Machi Koro famously came out a few years ago, and it really um, popularized this idea of, hey, everybody's got a bunch of cards in front of them with numbers. you know, um, And every round, somebody's going to roll a die, and everybody gets to activate the matching card of that number. And you're trying to build a tableau of cards so that they can combo with each other, and then hopefully the die will let you activate the stuff you want. So, Machikoro was a sensation. And it went on to spawn um, other games that took the core ideas of Machikoro but really elevated them, like Space Base and you know, Valeria Card Kingdoms and a few others besides. And those were all great. Um, but My Farm Ecl Sharp eclipses all of them. It's the Machikoro Killer. It's the Machikoro Killer Killer. Uh, it is because it does so much more. On your turn, you're going to roll three dice. 
um, one of those dice you are going to use to get a new card and add to your farm. And you uh, have to do this. And sometimes you don't want to. I've got the perfect farm, but I, I got to take one of these dice. The other two dice will then combine to let you and everybody else activate um, you know, a, one of the tiles on their boards. There is so much that goes into thinking. I just It's three simple dice. I'm, if, I, if I take this three, that five and that six means it's an 11, which means I'm going to activate that, and you're going to activate that, and you're going to activate that. But if I take the five, then the six and the three means everybody's going to activate their nines, and I'll get the number five card. Um, and if I take the six, you get the idea. It's super simple. And yet, you can I mean, Jen, she got really lost. There, she had some very big analysis paralysis turned because there's so much you can plan out. You can see what all the cards you could eventually get are. You've got so many different combos that you can create on your board to set stuff up to pay off later. And you have to be so omnipresently careful about, oh man, this is what I want to do. I desperately want to get the card in slot number five. But that means everybody's nine. Your number nine card is your best card by far. That'll give you six points if I let you do that. I can't let you do that, but I so desperately need this five card. The tension and the angst you feel just trying to decide how to deploy these three little dice is so you know gut-wrenching in the best way. You're just like, oh, I, I, I can't do it all. And I, I just love it from start to finish. And um, it is such a blast. And now, interestingly... I think this could still work as a gateway, or certainly a gateway plus game, because a lot of the core elements here are so simple. And yet, there's so much depth and richness. Rudiger Dorn once again demonstrates to the world why he is one of the premier designers, one of the designer superstars out there. And you should always pay attention to what he's got coming out, even if you look at the box cover and you think, well, that just looks like it's, you know, for kids... My farm shop offers so much more. It is deep and rich for days. It's got tons of replayability, tons of variability, and I absolutely love it. My best game of the month, and I think it was my wife's second best. She, uh, there's one she liked more, uh, but oh my gosh, my farm shop is not going anywhere. It's too early to say. We're only halfway through the year it might make it into my top 10 of the year, quite frankly. And you wouldn't expect it. Do not judge a book by its cover. Uh, definitely, when you get a chance, look a little bit deeper. Look beyond the cover of My Farm Shop. Phew, that's it, folks. We made it. We are an hour and tw 18 minutes in. I have taken longer than I thought I would. So I got to go. And um, thanks, as always, for watching. And like I said up front, if you're in the board game industry and you would like to start sponsoring a new show that I'm hoping to roll out this month, um, details coming, definitely reach out and let me know. And uh, speaking of sponsors, I will end by saying thanks to all of you, but also a huge thanks, as always, to Fun Again Games for supporting the show. Uh, talk to you later, everybody. So long. Uh, bye bye